In today's episode, we open up God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 3. St. Peter focuses on the dynamics of relationships, particularly between husbands and wives and within the family. He offers invaluable insights into how believers can navigate the trials of life with grace and gentleness. He also emphasizes the enduring strength that lies in maintaining a spirit marked by humility and respect, even in the face of adversity. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, September 8th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Folks, are you looking for a way to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people around the world? Do you want to support the mission of translating and publishing Lutheran books and materials into more than a hundred languages? Well, then you might be interested in our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They're a nonprofit organization that works with churches and missionaries to provide resources for evangelism and discipleship and leadership development. They've published over a thousand titles, including Luther's Small Catechism and Bible Stories, Hymnals, and a lot more. Learn more about their work and how you can get involved on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, to help us uh, continue our trek through 1 Peter, through Peter's first epistle to the Christians in the diaspora, is the Reverend Martin Schultheis. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Good morning, Pastor Schultheis, and welcome to the program. Am I pronouncing your name right? Uh, very close, Schulteis, but yes, it works. I've heard a lot worse. You know what? They did tell me Tice, and I just didn't do it right. So there you go. No well, problem. as someone, as someone whose last name is constantly butchered, I uh, I can appreciate sure. trying to get it right. <laughs> well, brother, tell us and a little I'm... bit about yourself. This is the first time I've had you on the program. I'd love to hear about how God's working through you, and you know what sort of things that are happening in your life and in your ministry. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate being on the show. I'm glad that you're here. I have been able to be on the show previously in years past a couple times, so it's good to be back. Uh, so interestingly, over the last uh, three weeks, I'm actually serving in a different capacity. I'm, I'm no longer at Emmanuel Lutheran, which I love my 19 years there. But I'm actually serving the Southeastern District now, uh, working with our President Bill Harmon, and our staff and congregations here um, as a chief ministry officer. So everything is new uh, for me as I I learn the work of the district and how we support our congregations in connecting people to Jesus. Well, excellent. I was, uh, I first came to the Lutheran faith in the Southeastern District. Who was it? Diefenthaler, I think, was the president at the time, way back in the day. And uh, my dad is still a member of a congregation in the Southeastern District. So I'm very familiar with with the district you serve, and that's a great uh, new opportunity for you, and I know they'll be blessed by you. Chief Ministry Officer. What kinds of things do you do as the Chief Ministry Officer? That sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> it does. It's probably much more impressive than it is. I, I assist our district president, and then I serve our staff here to help um, help them fulfill their vocations as we you know, help the congregations and church workers that are part of the district. Excellent. Very good. Well, wonderful. I'm glad to have you back on the program. Like I said, it's the first time we've sort of met over the airways. I'd like for you, if you would, please, to start our time together in prayer before we dive into this text, because it's an interesting one. It is. 
It is. I'd love to. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all your good gifts, uh, most especially the gift of your Son, uh, for it is in your Son that we discover who we are. And Lord, by his service and his humility, you show us the way of life. And as that gift lives in us and through us, we are able to show that same life to the world. So we pray that it may be done in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're approaching our text today very cautiously and carefully. And why are we doing that? Well, because the world is full of sin and they don't like the first verse of our text for today. But it's worth looking at in context. It's worth looking at with a Christian heart and, of course, uh, removing from it all the baggage that has come along with it. If folks are wondering what I'm, I'm talking about, I'll go ahead and read it to you. Verse 1 of our text for this morning says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, I, I think obviously we're going to be getting into what it means to be a subject of your husband for wives, but he begins with likewise. So obviously he's in the middle of a longer point that he's been making since yesterday's show. So perhaps catch people up, right? Set the foundation so that we're we're uh, jumping off into our text this morning running. Great. You know, I, when, when I re-looked at the passage that I agreed to do, and I realized that it was this one at first, I was like, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? <laughs> uh, at the same time, as I got into it more, I was like, oh, that's what I love about this passage. And I think you nailed it in the sense of the most important word uh, of those two verses is likewise. Uh, without that, you know, we end up, you know, fighting against, you know, a, a, a lot of battles we don't want to. But if we look at the likewise, we have to go back and say, what's going on? What, what are we asking wives to be like? And I think the the easiest and maybe the in some ways the best place to go back to is uh, chapter two verse thirteen where it says be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution uh, whether it be the emperors uh, or such um, and verse fifteen for this is the will of God that by doing good works. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And uh, what we find is that the likewise is that we are being called to be subject to others, not without reason, though. Uh, there's always a so that. So with the uh, emperor, it's so that you can put to silence uh, people's ignorance uh, for the wives if we look there, it's so that even if they don't obey the word, your husbands, they may be one. Uh, what we find is that the service that we are called into is um, evangelistic in nature, is it not? It's, it's meant to be productive in nature. We are called to do these things uh, not because we're called suffering, we are called to suffering, but even our suffering we're called into because of its productive nature. 
Uh, Christ suffers for us because it does something, uh, because it accomplishes something. And so for um, all of us, we're subject to our authorities. Um, Chapter 2, verse uh, 18, servants or slaves are called to be subject to masters. Again, this this is not God's way of of, of endorsing uh, slavery and servanthood, but as Christians, if you're whatever position you're in, there is a place where you can serve others. For verse 21 of chapter 2, for this is what Christ has done for you. Um, and it's beautiful how Peter gives this example. This, this is who Christ is. This is what he's done. And by this, the end of verse 24, by his wounds, by his suffering, you have been healed. And so likewise, women, you can serve your husbands because it's going to have an effect because it's good. Uh, not it's not even a matter if it's it's good for you because it's good for them. It's good that Christ suffered because it's good for us because of what it has done. Um, which so I would say even more, Pastor, that that the likewise jumps us not just to chapter two, verse thirteen, but go back even more, especially for those who have your Bibles. Look at verse nine. Um, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Okay, that's who you are. That, there's your so that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this whole passage that we get in today is just in kind of a picking apart of what it means to be a, a, a chosen race or tribe is probably the, the, the better uh, English translation, a chosen tribe, a royal priesthood, a holy nation chosen by God so that the world may come to know um, Christ and the good news. Uh, so wives, uh, whether your husband is believing or whether your husband is not believing, serve, uh, be in submission to, uh, so that they may um, they may know uh, the gospel, they may know the good news, so that they may be one uh, without, without a word even uh, by what you do. And that, of course, is the goal here, right? So I'm going to read the actual the first seven verses of our chapter because it has a lot. But it does begin, as you've already stated, wives be subject to your husbands so that even some, the some who do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It continues with verse three. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise... 
Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we've begun with the be subject to your own husbands, but he continues to double down. Um, and, and now husbands are going to get theirs too, just like um, elsewhere where it says wives submit to your husbands, but husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. There, there's a duty on both sides of the relationship, and um, they're yeah. both difficult and need to be accomplished only with the Holy Spirit. Uh, but, but we see here about respectful conduct and Peter, at least, brings up the concepts of braiding hair, putting on gold jewelry, or you know, fancy clothing. And this sort of recalls, in my mind, back in my uh, Southern Baptist days, back down south, and a lot of folks around us were, um, uh, you know, Pentecostal and some other traditions that take passages like this very seriously and and quite quite uh, just so they just take it right out of context and drop it into our life today to say women shouldn't braid their hair or shouldn't wear any jewelry or shouldn't wear makeup or only wear sort of drab clothing so as not to distract, of course, from the hidden person of their hearts. But I'd like to hear what you think that this is uh, is meaning for us today and, of course, what it meant for the people of Peter's time. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. In our southeastern district, we have such cultural diversity. Again, uh, like some other places in the U- in the U.S., some of the greatest cultural diversity in the world is is you know is is present, and so just getting to know some of the congregations uh, that are made up of people from other parts of the world, you recognize that the way that people live out their culture and their relationships, men and women, can be very different um, externally even as internally it's meant to be out of respect, out of love, uh, out of um, submission to Christ and, and, and his word. And so, you know, the braiding of hair and uh, the wearing of gold, you know, they, that, that, that kind of thing can be cultural. But I think even Peter here isn't necessarily saying to the people of that culture, to the women of that culture, hey, don't, don't braid your hair or wear gold. Uh, rather than, I, I think what he's really trying to drive home is what is your adornment? If you think your adornment are those things that are on the outside of you, then um, then then you're living a shallow life. Then the the Christ in you is not going to be as easily seen. Um, or you won't recognize what is truly meant to be seen. Uh, for it's not about whether you braid your hair or not, or whether you wear gold or not, but your adornment, that which makes you beautiful, that which shines forth the, the truth of who you are, is that hidden person in you. And I, 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 and I think here he is talking that it's, it's Christ in you. Uh, so, so wives, you have Christ in you. Uh, Let Christ shine forth uh, from others, no matter what you're wearing. Um, But, but don't be, don't let the externals be what you're communicating, uh, be what you're leading with. Um, Whether, whether you have the externals or not, really in the end, I, I don't even, I don't even think for Peter is, 
really the topic that he's trying to address. I would agree. I, I think at the time, as Christians were butting up against the uh, pagan culture, you know, in that culture, in the Roman society, in the Greek society, uh, things like what you look like, what you wore, often communicated your status before the people. And there's really no difference today. People who are not of a particular status want to dress like they are, right? So it seems like the wealthiest people dress down, but the uh, the lowest income people try to buy the most expensive clothes to feel wealthy. And that's a human nature, and we all do it to a certain extent. And I think that's what's going on back then, especially women were taking after the cues of, of uh, the women of the, say, Roman cultures and other cultures that they were encountering and say, oh, you know, I want to display a way that shows that I'm very wealthy, whether they were or not, or perhaps even intentionally um, sexually enticing or, you know, so I think the connection is not to avoid makeup or clothing or jewels in your hair. I think it's more about, as you've been saying, and rightly so, uh, make, make, don't depend on those things for your value as a person. Like, you know, dear wife, your value isn't in how attractive you are or aren't. Your value isn't in how uh, expensive your clothes are or aren't, but your, your, your value is in that God sent his son to die for you and now has given you a husband who has the very sacred duty of being Christ to you. And so I think there's always that caveat whenever we talk about these subjection passages for wives that this is... The, the prerequisite is that the husband is acting Christ-like to his wife. And so, you know, it says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Husbands, you have to love your wife like Christ loved the church, as it says elsewhere. So we have this context of if husbands are self-abnegating, sacrificing for their wife, putting their wife first, well, that's pretty easy for a, a Christian wife to submit to. So if you find out there in your relationships, you know, you, husbands are saying, well, I wish my wife would be, uh, uh, le- you know, lend herself more to my leadership. And, and your wives are saying, well, maybe I wish you would be a little bit more Christ-like. Well, then obviously we all have, have work to do. But is that how you also see this breaking down? Yeah. Anyway, you, know, you know what's kind of funny is that when Paul talks about these things, you know, the, the language where he uses, you know, the uh, women as as we are to Christ and men as Christ is to his church. I don't know if you notice with Paul he does a he has a very short passage on women and he has a long remarks on men uh, oh, yes. for their their role. And and Paul and Paul was single. Peter, who is married, actually had more to say to the wives and shorter. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it, except I thought it was kind of funny. Well, um, I will but, say that when I read Paul's you know, writing on the subject, it really comes through clear how, in some ways, the husband's duty is a little bit difficult. I mean, you know, he, he has to love his wife like Christ. The, the woman just needs to respect her husband. Uh, here yeah. in this case, it, it seems a little more, I guess, almost practical because— to say you should show honor to your wife or to the woman as the weaker vessel, I mean, that means something, but just like submission or be subject to, it's something that I think people can misinterpret. Um, is that something you would like to talk about? Like, what, what does weaker vessel mean? Well, I, I, think, I think for both Paul and for Peter, um, it, it, if, if we really look at what they're both saying, 
it's a challenge for both men and women to like who who submits more do do we submit more to Christ or has Christ submitted more to his church um you know it, it it's like this argument you you can't you can't real at the end of the day it's both of us in one way serve and sacrifice for the other and i think what peter's saying here is you know as christ you know suffered submitted sacrificed for we who are weaker uh, by nature, uh, in, in that same way, you know, men, you know, if, if, especially in, in a culture that emphasized uh, probably more so what they would consider a, a weakness of women, men then submit to them, uh, to submit, not submit to, but submit under, to serve, to um, to sacrifice for as as Christ does, because in the in the realm of the gospel, the 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 greatest is the least among us. Uh, the one um, the one who serves all is the greatest of all. And so, uh, men, if you if you see yourselves as as greater than your wives, well, what what does Christ do for the weaker? He serves. So do so uh, the same as Christ has done for you. I don't, I I I, I don't think it's I don't think it's something that is specific to that culture. Uh, I think that's the universal message that he is giving, is that uh, neither men or women are um, able to get out of uh, this role of service to, of sacrifice for, uh, even if it may look different for men and for women. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I do think there are a, a little bit elements of the culture at play, though, I will say, because um, one of the ways they may have seen women as weaker in that culture, maybe a little bit more specifically, is that men were typically the ones doing the the hunting, the working, the fighting, um, the leading, uh, the uh, the cultivating of the ground, all the things uh, the men typically did. And so, in that way, just from like a physical strength point of view, or the requirement of of making a living, um, the the wives weren't suited to that task. The the tech the word there, um, asthenes, uh, which is just the word for weak or weakness, sick or something like that. We see that used, obviously, in other contexts. One of the, I think, the greatest connections is Romans 5. It says, while we were still asthenes, while we were still weak at the right yep. time, Christ died for the ungodly. So I think that use of weaker isn't to demean the woman in the sense that she's somehow lesser than the man, but rather in this culture, the tasks were different. and our culture today, many of the tasks are different. But you're right to point to the weakness that is inherent in all Christians or all people. And so we see here, uh, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that's why you're doing it, because of their equality with you, because you both have access to, well, <laughs> the, the kingdom of heaven, because of the faith that God has given you. So I think there's I think people who look at these things and they are immediately troubled by them or they want to 
uh, mix it up or stir it around so that it means something it doesn't, I think are being dishonest with the text. It seems to be very clear it's what what, uh, what Peter is talking about here. Yeah, and especially if, again, there, there are always cultural arguments that distract from the real conversation that's going on. Um, I, I think both men and women can find a call to humility um, as as Christ himself um, followed a path of humility uh, for us. And I, and, and I do agree. I agree with you fully that that, that connection with Romans 5 is, is a perfect connection in terms of the weakness of uh, simply who we are. We are, we are all in need, are we not? Indeed. Indeed. Absolutely. So uh, just a couple of things to catch up before we move on to the next section, which I hope to do after the break. I don't want to I don't want to miss anything in this text. So stepping back for just a moment, we kind of skip the part, verse five, where it says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah uh, obeyed Abraham, her husband, calling him Lord. So it's, I hear a little bit like, um, you kids today and you're not submitting to your husbands and you're not wearing and trying to wear all these fancy clothing. Uh, am I, am I hearing right? Cause he seems like he's wistfully remembering the good old days when, when, uh, when these things used to be, how, how should we understand that? Yeah, I, I, there's, there's probably a, a sense of that. I think we always have the heroes of the faith for us to hearken back to. Uh, to, I, I love some of the passages in, in the book of Hebrews where we are brought back to, to those who've gone before us as examples. At the same time, we also know when, when we read their stories that, that they too struggle at times. Uh, both Abraham and Sarah struggle at times. Uh, but to hearken back, and I think what's really important is that Peter is connecting this with the a continuity of of the message uh, to the present day that that we're not changing things all of a sudden with Christ, but this is a fulfillment of of what already was back with Abraham and Sarah. Uh, this is this is a new thing. This is just a a fullness of it uh, that is being lived out today. So there's both a, a looking back and saying, hey, you know, let's look at Sarah, but there's also a connection to uh, this is the same God who's been around, you know, all all these ages. We're just seeing this now fulfilled in Christ. Yes, well, that's certainly something that we can put our hope, trust in, that Christ is coming and redeeming all of us weaker vessels so that we could be subject to Him and to one another as we strive to live as Christ would have us live. Folks, uh, lots of good stuff. We're going to maybe keep on going when we get back uh, with suffering for righteousness' sake, so be sure to uh, show up for that. Until we see you on the other side, take care.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boog. And with me this morning is the Reverend Martin uh, Schulteis, Chief Ministry Officer in the Southeastern District, LCMS. Before we get back to the text, friends, I just want to let you know it's a joy to have you with us diving into God's Word. Um, if you have any questions or thoughts or comments, you just want to drop a friendly hello, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Send me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. And when you reach out, let me know where you're listening from and how you tune into the show. Maybe you listen over the air or as a podcast online at kfuo.org or, and listen, folks, if you've not checked this out, I can't emphasize this enough, the KFUO radio app available for Android and iPhone. I use it not only sort of on the go, but I hook it up in my truck and I listen to Sharper Iron and Concord Matters and all the other good programs here on KFUO. You can use it to listen to them and to us. All right, Pastor, before the break, we were just sort of finishing up with, I, I don't know that this gets as much, um, I don't know, how can I say, traction or, or stirs up as much controversy as, as Paul's version of this does. I, I think Paul's is just more well-known. But one of the things I think is great about what we just covered is that Paul and St. Peter, of course, and we're not surprised by this, but we see how in tune they are with one another. Yes, the Holy Spirit's behind it all, but we know they've had their disagreements, and yet look at some of these basics of the faith, including how to live out our Christian lives with one another, and you see, well, no, there's, there might be personality differences, but there certainly isn't differences in doctrine. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. They go through, um, especially if you go back to chapter two, they just go through a lot of the stations we have in life as they relate to, you know, the, the country in which we live, the, the, the work that we do, the, and the relationships that we have in our families, that so much of living out the Christ life is just simply done here and now. Uh, through these relationships, and they both lay forth a, a very similar picture as to what that looks like, and that picture looks like Christ. Yeah, right. Go figure, right? It looks like <laughs> our Savior, who, who we should be imitating anyway. Well, the next section, I think, brings everybody together, everybody we've been talking about, submission to authorities, uh, slaves and your masters, or maybe today, hopefully, we would say employees and employers, and then husbands and wives. But now with verse 80 begins, finally, all of you. So he's bringing everybody back into the fold. Here we go. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, and he quotes, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, end quote. Uh, and that's from the Psalms. Um, so finally, all of you, he says, and he emphasizes unity, sympathy, uh, phileos, right? Brotherly love, tender hearts and humble minds and not repaying evil for evil. Um, what? This is a radically countercultural way that God is calling Christians to live, isn't it, brother? It is, I, and yet it only it, it echoes like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, it echoes both Jesus's teaching and and his living out. But it is, it's that kind of life which really would draw the attention of those who don't know it because it doesn't make sense. I mean, he's he's basically saying, uh, live a life where it's not about you, uh, where you're willing to, um, to serve the other, um, and bless, and, and bless others. And, and when we get into it, I, I know we're going to get into it. You know, it, it, it's even blessing those who are against you. Um, it, it is a different way of life. Absolutely. I mean, Unity, of course, kind of makes sense. Everybody wants to be unified. Uh, sympathy is to care for others. Brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. I mean, all those are good virtues, really, for believers and unbelievers. Uh, but the number nine, I think, is also what really shakes up the whole foundation, the whole paradigm, as they say. Don't repay evil for evil. You know, even um, the the I think of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount and other things, and it's like, yeah, don't no eye for an eye, no tooth for a tooth, but that's just it's just sort of bred into our human existence. We want to get back at people who harm us. We want to be made whole when we are harmed. We want revenge and punishment and punitive things, and of course not. Well, obviously, there's exceptions, but the exceptions come from the Christian understanding of forgiveness to turn the other cheek, to give the cloak to the person who takes it from you. So um, I, I think that this don't repay evil for evil, be humble, brotherly love. Could you imagine, could you imagine if the whole world acted like that? It would be, well, <laughs> heaven. <laughs> but at the same time, there have been people who said, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. They say, listen, if Christians live the way Jesus wanted us to live or wants us to live, Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, the cold cloak thing, walk two miles, etc. Wouldn't that open up Christians to being completely run over by outsiders? Couldn't people hmm. harm us and and do bad things to us, and then we just have to take it? Is is that what Jesus is? Or well, I, Jesus is okay too, but is that what First Peter uh, is uh, talking about here? Well, I, that's an interesting question. I guess on the one hand, on the one hand, I could say sure. Because, you know, if we live the way that is described, don't be surprised if you get crucified, because we, you know, that, that's, that's who we follow. And so if we're following the crucified one, don't be surprised if you end up at the cross. At the same time, because of the resurrection, we know that the cross or our persecution or our suffering, whatever it may be, 
is never the fi- is never the the final say so. It's it's never the 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 final word for us. And and Peter's big on that in his letter here is that yeah, some of you guys are going to suffer for doing good, um, but but don't see that as a judgment on you or or that you have lost. Um, I, I, I love how you brought up the parallels with Paul because sometimes we do pit Paul against Peter, but I see some of the, the parallels even with uh, Romans 8 here. You know, at the end, even with persecutions and all that we go through, we still are more than conquerors. At the same, he's, not, he's not saying look for it. He's not saying search uh, for ways to be persecuted. Um He's not saying uh, try to get the world to go against you. It's it's a much more um, uh, positive message in the sense of he's teaching us what love looks like. This is love. At the end of the day, love often does get persecuted, but that's also where love is tested and where the fruitfulness of that love uh, begins to come come forth um, and and again I'm so itching to get to get to verse 15 here but but this is really leading up to it is is how if we truly live this kind of life um, some some will some will test it uh, and some will push us to uh, you know, are you really are you really going to love me when I do evil to you? Uh, but at, mm. at the end, at the end, this is often how people are often won over. Uh, that's how Christ has won us over. Are you really going to do evil? Are you really going to love me if I do evil to you? That's an interesting statement. It made me think of, of course, Job. Right? You know, you have the accuser telling God, you know, this guy only loves you because you do all these great things for him. Uh, what would happen if you, you know, didn't? <laughs> and so we see, we know how that plays out in Job. That'd be a good book to do. I wonder when that's been last done. But anyway, <laughs> so we see that work out in Job. But but I love how you bring up the point that when people see us not being run over, but obviously responding to the evil that's done to us with love, as hard and difficult as that is, then you're right. I bet that leaves a significant impression on people. It tears down barriers and might make them at the very least go, Oh, why are you, why are you acting that way? (laughs) Um, and, and the, the proverb, sorry, the Psalms here, uh, let's see here. What Psalms? I don't know. I'm off the heart. Oh, it looks like Psalm 34. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Don't do evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. That is seek peace and pursue it's really important because I know a lot of folks out there, I think otherwise well-meaning Christians, who enjoy, uh, well, for lack of a better word, I'll say enjoy suffering for righteousness' sake. As you said earlier, they, they seek it out. They look for ways to be persecuted or they'll take small inconveniences and elevate them to the level of persecution. Look, I'm being persecuted. But here we are not to seek it, but seek peace, pursue it. The reason why you want to have unity and sympathy and brotherly love is so that things don't get out of control, so that you can reconcile 
Um, I, I think that's just uh, good advice for us in our day and age. Yeah, and I, I think I think you're hitting on something important is that those who seek that suffering, and they may call it for righteousness sake, uh, can often do so with a self-centered uh, purpose. But what Peter is, is presenting to us, and which Christ presents this to us, is at the end of the day, it's all about love. So to seek persecution, it's only the, the response out of it has to be not, oh, look, I've been perse- persecuted. Oh, look, I'm suffering for Christ. The end of it has to be, and love for the persecutor, uh, blessing them uh, in, in, in the process. So it's, it ha- it, it's outward um, purposed rather than inward purposed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's keep on going because there's still a ton to get through. I've already admitted this, so you know, no need to call me out on it. But another uh, guest was telling me there's just so much in these texts. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have tried to do a chapter uh, a lesson because uh, sometimes it's hard to fill a whole hour, and then sometimes like this, there's just so much good stuff. But uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go ahead and read some more verses, yeah. 13 through mm-hmm. 17. Here we go. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, because it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, he's going to keep on going and connect that suffering to Christ, but let's pause. Um, a couple of you know really important, I guess, verses come out of this that we hear often, and one is the suffer for righteousness sake, which we've already started to talk about, but then also the Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason, the, the hope that's in you. That we hear a lot in Christian circles. Um, I'm not sure a lot of people even know it comes from Peter, but here it is. Um, how do we understand this and put it into practice today, brother? Yeah, and I, I don't think a lot of people know that it comes in the midst of a context regarding suffering um, for um, at, the, at the hands of, or I should say, suffering for righteousness' sake is really suffering for the sake of someone else while you're doing good. So I'm, 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 I'm not suffering unfairly um, outside of justice in order to bring blessing to someone else. And it's in that context where we are actually um, living out that suffering, where people then notice it, because now you're still loving those who persecuted, that now people, the questions start popping in people, people's minds. What's going on? What is this hope that you have that you can love those who are persecuting you? That just doesn't make sense. Tell me about it. And that's, you know, in a sense, Peter's evangelism technique said, be ready. Because now you're ready to talk about uh, what you've lived out, uh, which is what Christ has lived out. So 
be ready then to tell tell them the truth and tell them why you're able to do uh, what you do and about the hidden one in your heart uh, that that you're doing it through and um, and well, That's I was just going to say, you make a point, and I'm sorry to interrupt or interject. I, you make a point that I hadn't really considered before, and, and that is that the, the greater context, um, when it says be prepared to um, give a defense for the hope that's in you, I guess it hadn't really stood out to me before, but that's in the context of people looking at you enduring persecution. It isn't just yeah. a, well, I hear you're a Christian. You better tell me about the hope. It really, at least in this context, is about why are you not acting like we are? <laughs> why are you not pursuing vindication, seeking eye for an eye? Why are you, why do you love your enemies? Why? Wait a minute. Do you pray for those people? Or don't those people hate you? Oh, wait a minute. Why are you serving water and uh, to the people who are outside your church protesting you? Uh, that, I think, is the opportunity to be prepared to make a defense and honestly before you said anything i hadn't even thought about that am i that's, understanding that's it right beauty yeah that's the beauty of this passage there's so much more power uh in the proclamation when people have seen the christ in you at work and they don't they don't know that it's christ in you at work that's the thing they they look at you and they think you're nuts why would why would you do this because you're not you're not being run over by others, because you may be run over by them, but you're getting back up to bless them, and that's what they don't understand. They've seen people run over and just left as victims, and they've seen others fight uh, against their persecutors, but they haven't seen people run over who get up and bless, and that confuses them, and so they want to know what's going on, and that's where we get to say finally, and they're finally able to listen. This is Christ. This speaks a lot to how we proclaim the gospel. Now, I'm, I am absolutely not one of those people who subscribe to the, well, I'll just witness to people by what I do, and I don't have to talk to them about Christ. I don't mm. believe that. <laughs> you obviously have mm -hmm. to talk to them about Christ. But with that said, I think this does support the idea that you don't need to go around wearing your Christianity on a sleeve, you know, show people that you're a Christian— Without you, should, people should be able to see that you're a Christian, or at least know something's different about you, without you having to specifically mention Christ. But obviously, always be mentioning Christ, though. Don't use that as an excuse not to. Right. And 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 that's how that's that's the spirit of work in the other then to to notice things differently and then to ask. And again, we ha we have to. My message about Christ trying to push Christ on you does not have the same effect as me showing love in a way that the world doesn't understand uh, to a person who then wants to know. Uh, witness is always better when the person actually wants to know something, and this makes them want to know. Well, what I really like about Peter's message here, at least in this chapter, is he he encourages, demands, commands, however you want to say it, you to be prepared to make a defense of the, of the hope that's within you. And then he gives us a great example of that in the final verses of this chapter, verses 18 through 22. He, it's a nice little summary. Uh, let's, let's hear it. He writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might 
bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were briefly, or sorry, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, he writes, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, if he'd have added one more line about him returning, we'd have practically had the creed. So um, <laughs> he does a good job of summing it up, but that hasn't kept us, of course, from arguing with ourselves among what proclaiming to the spirits in prison mean. And of course, some Christians denying the salvific activity of baptism in verse 21. So we could spend an hour just on these verses, but maybe let's touch on them lightly. Uh, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter's overarching theme in this first letter seems to be your suffering connects you to Christ's suffering, and that's good news. Yeah. Um, take us more specifically, though, through that, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about his proclaiming uh, to the spirits in prison. Yeah, well, let's let's start with that and go backwards. Uh, there good. is so much debate as to what that proclaiming to the spirits in prison means. Is it kind of, you know, Jesus saying, hey, listen, I've done it, now you know, and and goodbye? Is it that there's a salvific work that he's doing on behalf of those who are in prison? I'll, I'll let theologians at a different level debate that. What becomes important? Now wait a minute! Aren't you the drive... chief ministry officer of the Southeastern <laughs> District? I'm just uh, just Ser- clarifying. Serving that. serving the district president. <laughs> who? I'm sorry, brother. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> who serves the synodical president? We'll we'll let them debate that. We'll let them do it. Then that sounds good. That's right. But but what what does drive it home? And I think where we can where we can put our rest and hope in is that what he has done, verse 18, suffering for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, is that he might bring us to God. And I think what we can then use is that everything that Christ has done, birth, life, death, descent, resurrection, ascension and is coming again and we could go before his birth too because he's active before he's even born of the virgin mary um everything that christ does is that he might bring us to god and so we have to use that to help then us understand everything else that's described in this that the speaking to the spirit well that he might bring us to god baptism that he might bring us to god uh his resurrection, his subjecting all the angels, authorities, and powers that he might bring us to God. Uh, because ultimately, and this is again where, where Peter and Paul are very clear, very much in agreement with each other, that um, the goal really is that he might bring us all uh, to God. And so that, that's his work, and that's what he calls us into, whether it's uh, the baptism that he's given me as part of bringing me to God, or his 
as baptized, called me part of the, the chosen tribe, the royal priesthood, and uh, making me part of his body, uh, doing uh, his work, continuing his work, uh, being his presence here on earth as he, as he works to bring everyone else to God. So it talks about bab. I want to just dwell on the baptism part for just uh, just a yeah. minute, just at least a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have a special show just on baptism, but you know, a lot of times, especially me growing up, uh, Southern Baptist, where baptism was more of your own public declaration, it, it seems so clear to me now, looking backwards with passages just like this, baptism, which corresponds to this, he's connecting it to the flood, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So I think that the now saves you, um, connected to the as an appeal, is where some of the confusion comes in. Because while we know that God does the work through the baptism because he's promised that his word combined with water will do such a thing, I think some people look at that as an appeal and say, well, see, this is me kind of you know, showbreading it to God, look what I'm doing. Um, so I, mm. I, maybe just a reiteration of uh, how we understand and know that this now saves you part, which connects us to, you know, Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and then raised? Um, just, I just want people to remember and understand that this is one passage where uh, I guess there is a little bit of confusion. So, what do we mean by that appeal? Yeah, that's 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 a good question, and um, it, it, I, I think part of it is when we look at baptism as a whole throughout Scripture, the gift language that it is, and whether it's a cleansing or whether it's a new birth. And I, I love I love the image of baptism as a new birth because. Um, you did not ask for your parents to to bring you forth into this world, but rather that was the gift that you were given was birth. And and one can't ask to be born. Um, it is it is a gift that is given. And so I love how Christ um, Christ gives us that this is this is a new birth that we have, and, and no one gets to ask their own birth. It is a gift that is given to them, and they find themselves born, and they can rejoice in that gift. And so baptism is, is, that, is that gift that now saves you. And so in light of that, you have to go to the word appeal, and you say, well, well therefore, in the context of baptism, what does, what does this mean, right? And so uh, does, it, does it mean that... It helps me to understand that I can have a good conscience before God because I'm I'm baptized. Uh, that, that I need not be afraid uh, because of of who I am, um, because God sees who I am. And and even if my conscience were to uh, condemn me, uh, even because I'm baptized. Um, my conscience doesn't have the last say, but God does. Uh, but but you have to start with what what baptism really is and and the gift of of what new birth is. 
Well, I think that'll have to be the last thing we say about it <laughs> for the moment, because we're at the end of our program. But, um, brother, I'm so grateful that you were my guest this morning. Uh, it's the Reverend Martin Schulteis, Chief Ministry Officer in the Southeastern District, LCMS. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. That's a blessing. Thanks for having me. Uh, come back soon. I can't wait to have you again. Uh, folks, on Monday, St. Peter continues his letter, and we'll be opening up Chapter 4. He comforts and encourages the early Christians as they face relentless trials and persecutions over and over as they are spread out and far from home. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he weaves their suffering into the narrative of Jesus, and he reminds us all that through our own trials and troubles, we are connected to the sufferings of Christ. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 